Hello, and welcome to Democracy in Danger. I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Siva Vaidyanathan. In 1937, Abel Mirapol, the child of Russian Jewish immigrants, wrote a haunting poem under the pseudonym Lewis Allen. It was originally titled uh, Bitter Fruit, and it was reportedly uh, written after he encountered uh, a lynching photograph. This is political philosopher Melvin Rogers. There was a time in the United States where lynchings were pictured, photographed, and then sometimes put on postcards. That poem would soon be immortalized as Strange Fruit in the song by jazz great Billie Holiday. So Billie Holiday was told by her mother not to do it. And her response was, I think this could make the country better. Because in her mind, music was a a medium that could move the soul. I asked Rogers to read some of the lyrics. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Which he writes out and writes about in his new book, The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant South, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia sweet and fresh, and the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck. is a strange and bitter crop. That song is so powerful. It really stays with you. So, Siva, you spoke with Rogers recently, right? I'd love to hear more about what the two of you discussed. Yeah, Melvin was here in Charlottesville talking about his new book. And that book spans more than two centuries of intellectual life in the African diaspora. The book covers radical thinkers, writers, and artists. People like W.E.B. Du Bois, Billie Holiday, all the way up to James Baldwin. We also talked a lot about journalist Ida B. Wells, whose work exposed the violence that Billie Holiday sang about. Wells is writing um, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. She is what we would now describe as an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. Um, She's politicized by lynching, by the lynching of close friends. Mm -hmm. And she sets about to set the wreckage straight about the cause what's fueling these lynchings. It is not because black men are reportedly raping white women. That's the ruse. 
The real reason was that the new status of black men after Reconstruction threatened the status of white men and their patriarchal power over women, and of course, over the country in general. Wells' work laid that story bare. She wanted her readers to question whether America was in fact the civilized society that it claimed to be. And the thing I would say about both Wells and Holiday, the reason why they proceed this way is because how could they proceed otherwise? Right. If the whole point of democracy uh-huh. is for our fellows to act right in the light of their own considered judgments, mm. because only when they do that do you stabilize them. So we can't do this coercively. I see. We have to move the soul to this sort of moral and political rectitude, and that was what Ida B. Wells uh, sought to do. Well, I'm seeing the connections here with our theme for the season, Siva. Democratic life can't be just about institutional safeguards. It's that affective piece of the puzzle that really matters, maybe, maybe more than anything. Democracy is something that we have to feel, that we have to believe in. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly what I wanted to explore with Melvin. You know, what fascinates me most about the stories he tells in his book is how these towering Black thinkers and artists kept alive against all odds. Well, thank you for that question. And it's a, what Rogers calls their light of faith. Uh, it's a heavy question because it is not always clear that they uh, should have kept the light. It's really remarkable. I mean, it's so easy to wonder why an oppressed people in the face of untold suffering can continue believing in the very polity and the very government that's oppressing them. And Southern whites are justifying that oppression as necessary, even good. There's a profound lesson here, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And here's what Rogers has to say about that. For these figures, the United States was a place in which they invested a great deal of energy. They were not willing to just simply give up. They actually believed that they had figured out, and sometimes better than their white counterparts, Mm -hmm. that the American Republic depends for its legitimacy, what makes it worthy of our obedience and respect, that it depends on openness. And it is in that openness that they stood and contested the ways in which the society was organized, that they contested the brutality that they experienced. Siva, I love this idea of a counter-narrative to the white American story. It's not just that our democracies had to deal with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. It's that the subjects of white supremacy are the people who are pointing the way forward for us. Yeah, you know, it's such a strong argument morally. It's a strong argument aesthetically. It's also, to use a fancy word, good historiography. It's a more accurate, fuller reflection of the country's past and of the thinkers who have influenced and helped shape that past. And the story, by the way, goes back a long way. I'd love to play more of that interview for our listeners. Well, I love historiography, so Mm. let's do that. Okay, great. So why don't we go back to the very first writer Rogers talks about in his book, a person I had never heard of, the abolitionist David Walker. 
So David Walker is this extraordinary figure. He's born in 17, 1796 in mm. Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, he's free. His freedom follows the line of his mother who was free. Mm-hmm. Those are the cultural and legal norms at the time. And he uh, he makes his way north, landing in 1825 in Boston. Mm. There's a small African-American community there. And David Walker, along that journey to arriving in Boston, he's politicized along the way mm. because he's bearing witness to the enslavement of Black people and the horror that they're experiencing. And so he makes it to Boston in 18, uh, 1825, and he now wants to strike a blow against slavery, both the formal practice of enslavement in the South and the informal practice of domination in the North. And so he writes this appeal, this 1829 appeal to the colored citizens of the world, but in particular and very expressly to those of the United States of America. Ah. And this is an inflammatory document, but it is meant to galvanize African-Americans, to get them to resist practices of domination. And he does intend to uh, both strike fear in the hearts of white Americans, but also to shame them Mm. with the hopes of shaming them into a position of what we might call a kind of moral or political uprightness. And the thing that I would say that's quite important about David Walker is that that text marks uh, an important transition in African-American appeals. Prior to that, you had these deferential appeals. All of that goes out the window with Mm. David Walker's appeal. And why? Because he thought freedom was on the line and that the the language, the rhetoric must match the gravity of the issue. And thus, it becomes this sort of inflammatory document seeking to stimulate the nation to action. Yeah. I mean, so it must have really shaken people up at the time, right? Because I can't think of anything in that time period, Mm -hmm. quite so bold, right? And there are two moves in it that I'm struck by. One, the invocation of citizenship Mm -hmm. at a moment long before the 14th Amendment actually establishes citizenship and clarifies what that means. And then that it's about the world. It's not just about those of African descent who are in North America, right? It's about the world. Mm -hmm. So those seem like really forward-looking, future-looking, ambitious terms. What does he do with those terms? Yeah. So, I mean, let's think about it for a moment, if we can think with our audience for a moment. Um, The word appeal. Yeah. What are we doing usually when we're appealing to something? I'm pleading or We're we're pleading our case. We're trying to convince someone. And we're usually trying to convince them to render a judgment in our favor. Mm, Right, right, right. But notice that when we're making an appeal, we're also saying that the person or group of persons to whom we're speaking, they're an authority. Hmm. So here now is our first move. The appeal is directed to the colored citizens of the world, and in particular of the United States. He's now claiming that Black people of the world and of the United States, you're an authority. You sit in judgment. You sit in judgment over what and about what? About the situation in which you find yourself. Mm. Is this situation not deplorable? Is this situation not unacceptable? What are you going to do about it? Right. And Walker's argument is that this ability to render a judgment about one's community, about one's situation, is the first foundation of Mm -hmm. citizenship. What citizens do in the first instance, Mm -hmm. is assess the communities to which they belong. They judge the communities to which they belong in the service of cultivating a shared life. 
Yeah. And pamphlets have to do this, right? They can't just appeal to the logos. They can't just make an argument based right. on evidence, right? They have to stir the passions to do the work that they want to mm -hmm. do. So it's as much a work of art as mm -hmm. a work of political theory, right? So coming back for a moment, if we were to put Ida B. Wells' journalism down on a table, cover up her byline, mm -hmm. and show it to a sort of mythical paradigmatic journalism professor. That professor today might say, that's not journalism, that's propaganda, mm -hmm. right? Because it does so clearly tap into the emotions, into the passion. But this word propaganda is something we recoil from now. We don't want that in our democracy. Mm -hmm. We want our democracy to be above propaganda. But you quote W.E.B. Du Bois writing, all art is propaganda and ever must be. What are we supposed to do with that? What does he mean by propaganda? Right. I mean, well, we have very different conception of propaganda uh, in our current times. Mm. Uh, and there's a historical reason for why that's the case. Um, as Du Bois was writing uh, in the 1920s, uh, during the interwar period, mm -hmm. the uh, meaning around propaganda was up in the air and not yet settled. So there's an older conception of of propaganda that was literally about the propagation of the faith. Hmm. But the propagation of the faith perceived thought to be true. Right? So it was a religious notion. And so St. Paul was a propagandist. There, there you go. Yeah. Um, and Du Bois, he deploys this conception of propaganda right at a time where the other more darker conception of propaganda was coming on the table. So when he says that art is propaganda and ever must be, what he means is that art must be the propagation of the truth. Mm. And then the question becomes, well, how can art function in this way? And he thought that art could function in this way because it can reveal the complexity, the texture, the layer, the completeness of human life. Yeah. And in doing that art then lays bare the truth of human beings. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, there's a sort of version of Du Bois in my mind that is very nerdy. Mm -hmm. He's a sociologist. Right. He's trained in Germany. He has the ability to write in turgid academic prose when he wants to. But of course, his most famous book, The Souls of Black Folk, is it's a pamphlet, right? Mm -hmm. It's propaganda. It's beautiful. It's right. lyrical. It has rhythm in it. And he concludes it with an analysis of the effect of spirituals. Mm -hmm. So what work is he doing there? And how does that plug into your argument? Right. So, I mean, the, th the thing about souls is that souls comes right at a time when Du Bois himself... Mm -hmm. 1903, um, right? 1903, where Du Bois himself is doubting not sociology, properly speaking. Uh -huh. He was engaged in sociological work in the 1890s, but he's doubting that the presentation of facts is sufficient to help his audience to the truth. Right. You can't fact check your way right. to a revolution, to justice, right. to democracy. Right. And so it's not that Du Bois abandoned social science or his preoccupation yeah. with truth, but he comes to think that the vehicle by which one will arrive at it must be different. And so he talks in The Souls of Black Folk about these sort of car window sociologists mm -hmm. who don't uh, inhabit the space of grief and destruction. 
as the basis for arriving at truths about these very human lives on display. And by the time we get to the end of The Souls of Black Folk, where he offers up a meditation on the Negro spirituals, Black spirituals, freedom. Du Bois is trying to convey the spirituals as these deep expressions of grief and longing and possibility, and that they emerged from a fusion of uh, the horror of Black life, resources from one sort of unspecified African heritage, and forged in the crucible of American life. to suggest that here is a contribution from Black people that emanates from American life, and you need only pay attention to it. And in doing so, it will guide you toward democracy's demand, what it really requires. For Du Bois, music is a site for transformation. And be free, everybody! Oh, freedom! Oh, freedom! Sing it, sister! As Du Bois' influence fades, his status fades, someone else picks up the torch at that very moment. Many people, actually, but let's talk about James Baldwin, Mm. right? A person whose career starts at about the time when Du Bois is basically exhausted Mm -hmm. in what he's trying to say. I mean, he's a person who wrote for so long, he, he was frustrated on so many different levels. Baldwin takes over and has, from the beginning, a sense of lyricism, a sense of rhythm, And as you write, he gives us both prophetic fire and ministerial guidance. Hmm. He's another secular figure, though, right? So is he doing the same work? Is he doing different work? What happens there? Well, I mean, um, uh, uh, Baldwin was very much in the church. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, He's ministering to people. Hmm. Um, There's no way to read Baldwin independent of his Christian commitments. Mm Mm-hmm. The book ends with Baldwin. There are other figures, right? Howard Thurman, I could have discussed, Mm -hmm. King, right? All of these figures uh, who in some sense are sort of continuing the work of Du Bois. But so I conclude with Baldwin because I, you know, my sense is that Baldwin has a way of striking at the heart of the spiritual side of democratic life. Democracy attempts to respond to deep and profound existential questions about who we are, what is my purpose, what quest am I on, who should I become? So in that regard, I didn't think that there's any way to sort of pull apart Baldwin's critical engagement with the United States from his religious sensibility. I mean, Mm. in fact, his religious sensibility fuels the critique. Baldwin, though, is also a novelist, an artist, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And he never really cared about that line between being someone immersed in the nonfiction and the fiction. So talk about his work as an artist. And uh, did he bring the same democratic sensibility, sense of urgency to his art as as we see in his essays? So I deal mostly with the essays. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, I mean, I think that there's no way to read Baldwin's novels and not see him grappling with the constraints and restrictions um, of identity right. and the ways in which our identities need to be rendered limber. And, and that uh, preoccupation that runs through the art is precisely what's informing his sort of uh, civic 
engagement with the polity through the essays. In the essays, he's more explicitly in his own voice than in the art, but this is what he's preoccupied with. Mm -hmm. So if one critical and very central thread in Toni Morrison is about home and home as a place for standing mm -hmm. and right and uprightness and grappling with uh, the horrors of home. Mm -hmm. That's her thing. Baldwin's is about identity. Identity as constraint. Identity as an obstacle to freedom. Right. I mean, Baldwin's having a renaissance, right? With, yeah. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates invoked him. And yeah. it, now it seems like, you know, he's in many ways a writer of this moment, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and speaks directly to so many of the issues that we're grappling with in ways that that seem prophetic, right? Mm -hmm. Compared to when he was writing this stuff in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So who is part of this conversation today? Who is moving this conversation forward in the 21st century? I mean, Stephen, that's just such a hard question. We never really know in a moment. Right. And these figures only retrospectively come to achieve the status that they've achieved because of how we tell the story. Right. I mean, I think we see resources in this in, uh, uh, in the music of Kendrick Lamar, mm. who uh, has no problem, I think, articulating the abuse that Black people have experienced. But it all seems um, to be fortified by the sense that we'll be all right. Right. And there's a question about, well, where does that come from? What's the source of the justification for the claim that we're going to be all right? Well, I think this tradition is partly fueling that. And sometimes the tradition of African-American political thought, American political thought more broadly, sometimes it fuels us without us knowing Right, because we just, we're inhabiting the space and it lives in us, sometimes un, unbeknownst to us. So I think Kendrick Lamar is a good example for me artistically. You know, I think intellectually, you know, I think there are figures out there, you know, Eddie Glaude. I think there, mm. you know, Dania Allen, mm -hmm. you know, Amani Perry, who... Uh, are continuing this tradition, um, Colson Whitehead, yeah. continuing this tradition in a, in, a, in, a, in a variety of ways. The important point for me about our present moment and those that are continuing the tradition is how does one continue the practice of resisting, because this is where one is, this is one's home, yeah. continue the practice of resisting without taking on all of the burdens yeah. of being responsible for saving one's white counterparts. <laughs> and I think this group of figures that I've named have said, look, we're going to help point the way. Right, right, right. But salvation has gone out the window, right, right, right. and we're especially not interested in doing yeah. that. Well, we keep asking that question about all the black women who vote in Georgia yeah, yeah. time and time again, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, keep showing up, keep doing us a favor, right? right? But the thing that I would say is that I don't think it, you know, I wouldn't want to read that as uh, trying to be the heroes. No, of the right. Of They're course. engaged in their civic duties and you should be too. Right. And, and if somehow you're not, yeah. or you're engaged in your civic duties in a way that would install those in power that are anti-democratic, yeah. then you're going to have to work out for yourself why. Right, right. What is it about you such that you're willing to give it all up um, for anti-democratic politics, anti-democratic leaders? Right. You got to work that out. But this issue of we have no other choice, that's real. I mean, when Baldwin was asked, are you a pessimist? And he said, well, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. 
And his thought was that insofar as I'm alive, I can think and I can engage, then I have to, I'm responsible for this community to which I belong. And everything must be given in the service of of protecting it yeah. um, and securing the, the bits of joy that exist and perhaps expanding the, the, the opportunity for more joy. And they, we don't have the luxury right. intellectually or politically to sort of opt out. And I, I am deeply and profoundly, I don't know if it's because of my vocation, I don't know if it's because, well, I'm alive, but I'm deeply and profoundly suspicious of those who say, well, I, you know, I'm opting out. I just, I don't, I don't, I'm just, I don't think we have time for that. That was Melvin Rogers. He's a political philosopher and the associate director of the Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Brown University. His most recent book, published this last September, is The Darkened Light of Faith. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back. So, Siva, one of the things that Melvin Rogers is pushing us to think about is how important music and creativity are to understanding and to conveying the meaning of of the struggle, the struggle that we're all in, struggles for social justice, struggles to be heard, to getting the message out about the complexity of how we all experience the world that we make and the ways that we can make it better. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that is a sort of necessary component of any functional democracy is a sense that individuals uh, can express themselves but we fundamentally depend on each other. It's it's really the essence of having a liberal democracy because democracies don't have to be liberal. We see them all over the world. We see the quasi-democracy in Hungary. We see the collapsing democracy in India. They're still functionally democratic, right? They, they still have the nuts and bolts of democracy, the voting, the process, the celebrations, the campaigns, but they're not spiritually democratic. They are regimes built and systems maintained on indignation, on alienation, and ultimately on the threat of violence. But democracy is the antithesis of violence. It's an anti- violence technology and music and all arts, but music is probably the easiest one to exemplify on a podcast. You know, music is the clearest way for us to be in a circle, to join hands, to dance, to experience beauty and joy and oxygen. Yeah, I think um, democracy is not made in institutions. It's made by the people on the ground. Maybe it's supported, protected. And on the dance floor. And on the dance floor, right. that's right. Right, right. We inherit the music of those people who came before us, you know. And in our episode today, one of the things I've been thinking about is um, who inherits Billie Holiday's social justice message. I mean, I start thinking about Nina Simone. Absolutely. Um, but also, you know, as as Melvin Rogers finished um, his remarks, he's, he's pointing us towards Kendrick Lamar. So yeah. one of the important things here, too, is to think about how through music, through creativity and artistry, we create messages and aesthetic forms that can carry forward, um, that have historic meaning and convey value across time and space. Absolutely. And, you know, we we haven't this season 
done enough with other forms of expression, mm-hmm. other forms of art. Yeah. I, I'm thinking a lot about this because um, just recently the great television producer Norman Lear passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, Norman Lear set out in our childhood a sense that as Americans, it's okay to talk about just about anything. Mm. And it's okay to laugh about just about anything. You can laugh with and at a bigot like Archie Bunker. Mm -hmm. You can laugh with and at the struggles of a blue-collar African-American family in Chicago. And you can laugh with and at and cry with a woman who is trying to figure out if she should have an abortion. And you can do all that in 22 minutes (laughs) of a sitcom, you know, Mm -hmm. on CBS. It, Mm It... It's an amazing uh, legacy that such a powerful and yet efficient tool was used to not necessarily convince people to vote a certain way or think a certain way, but definitely inspired conversation and deliberation. If Maud could talk about what it means to make a decision Mm. to have an abortion before Roe versus Wade, then all of America for the next 72 hours would be talking and thinking about that. We actually could talk about stuff. Yeah. Comedy, you know, comedy in general, comedic theater and performance, physical comedy is truly democratic, right? Comedy allows you to upend power, right? Yeah. And to poke fun at how power operates. Or at least expose power, right? right? Yeah. Look, you know, we, we can't give up the passionate to the fascists. You can't let them own the marching and the dancing, you know, as I keep saying, and I, you know, I said it to Melvin Rogers, uh, you can't fact check your way to democracy, but you might be able to dance your way to democracy. Uh, You know, and Melvin manages to posit the cerebral in Ida B. Wells with the corporeal in Lady Day, right? So, Mm -hmm. so that, that juxtaposition is exactly what we need to have a real reignition of the passion for democracy. And you've been you've been exposing your students to the work of Ida B. Wells. So why don't, why don't you tell us about, about how that's working? Yeah, so she comes on the scene. It's the mid to late 19th century. She talks about Uncle Frederick, right? Mm. And the old Uncle Frederick, right? Who's that? Frederick Douglass. Oh, right? yeah, of course. Yeah, so Ida B. Wells um, goes and pounds the pavement at the World's Fair. She's mm. trying to get the attention of anyone who will listen to her. In 1893 um, in, in Chicago. 18, 1893 in Chicago. Um, she has pamphlets that she's made herself. She wants people to read what she has to say mm-hmm. about lynching in America. Um, and she's a powerful force. And one of the reasons she's so powerful is um, she's persistent. Yeah. She's also someone who is quite remarkable in how she deploys clothing. Mm. She has an aesthetic strategy. She dresses in a beautiful, very particular way that is colorful. She's she's very specific and strategic in the way that she presents herself. Wow. She knows how to work a crowd and she knows how to interact with people. And um, she is able to engage individuals, powerful people, because she's charismatic, because mm. she's passionate, because she's extremely smart and she's funny and self-deprecating and fearless. Mm. I and mean, she has a lot of reasons to be afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a woman who survived death threats. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who survived attempts on her life. 
um, and she was unafraid. Her response to threats against her life was to be more visible, which is a really remarkable way to live. Well, that is all we have time for on Democracy in Danger. And that does it for season seven. We'll be back in the new year with new topics and new shows. And why not more about the art of democracy? Yeah, no, I mean, this notion of potentially dance or sing our way into democracy. <laughs> I, I like this. As Du Bois put it, art, art has a way of, of tampering. Also, Will Hitchcock will be back from his sojourn to the United Kingdom. And Emily, you'll stick around and be a guest host with us when you can, right? Definitely. This has been so much fun. And in the meantime, everyone, stay in touch. Visit our website, dindanger.org. And follow us on Instagram at dindpodcast. That's D-I-N-D podcast. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengal, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. Ariana Aronson handles our social media. Adine Yeager engineers the show. Our intrepid interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Freyhat, Katie Pyle, Makhdoum Morad Shah, and Caroline Yu. We have help from Ellie Salvatierra. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio right here in Charlottesville. I'm Emily Burrell. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. Happy holidays to everybody.